It is a priceless treasure to have peace. Would you agree with that statement? If you have ever experienced the absence of peace, then you would agree with that statement. There are few things more torturous or agonizing in life than being without peace. Our text for this message talks about the priceless treasure of peace. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, as we will focus on just two verses this morning for this message, Philippians chapter 4. I feel overwhelmed trying to do justice to this monumental subject of the peace of God. I have, I have really wrestled with my words to try to communicate the marvels of God's peace. Look at the very familiar words of verses 6 and 7 from Philippians chapter 4. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. I'm sure many of you have memorized these two verses of Scripture. These are some of the most loved words in the Bible. So hopefully we'll be able to add some depth of meaning to our understanding of this precious promise in Philippians chapter 4. The starting point, I believe, is the need to understand the relationship between the different kinds of peace spoken of in the Bible. So first, let me start by explaining the difference between peace with God and the peace of God. These are sometimes referred to as objective peace and subjective peace. Objective peace is a fact. Subjective peace is a feeling. Peace with God is a fact. The peace of God is a feeling. You have to be at peace with God before you can experience the peace of God. To say it another way, objective peace precedes subjective peace. The Bible teaches that we are sinners by birth, by nature, by choice, and by practice. Because we are sinners, we are separated from God. We are alienated from Him. We are at enmity and we are enemies. Romans 5.10 says, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God... And then Paul goes on to make his point. But he makes it clear in that first phrase of the verse that in our sinful, unredeemed condition, we are enemies and therefore we need to be reconciled. We need to be brought into a state of peace. Objective peace. Peace with God. This is what Paul talks about in Romans 5.1 when he says... Therefore, 
having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is a statement about objective peace with God. It's not a feeling. It is a fact. But as you know, the Bible also talks about another kind of peace, and that is subjective peace. Subjective peace is experiential peace. It is something you feel. It is the peace of God. Objective peace, or peace with God, is something factual. You may not feel anything. Some people report in their testimonies that when they came to faith in Christ, they felt an overwhelming sense of relief or peace, and others say they felt nothing. They knew they were right with God because they did as Romans 10 says, they called on the name of the Lord. They believed in their heart. God raised Christ from the dead. They, they believed and they were saved, but there was no feeling associated with their salvation whatsoever. So objective peace is something factual. You may not feel anything, but subjective peace is not peace with God, it is the peace of God. For example, Isaiah 26.3 says, you will keep him, referring to God, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. That is a description of subjective peace. That is a description of the peace of God. But there's even another aspect of peace described in the Bible. And to see this, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. The very next letter after Philippians, Colossians chapter 3. And look at verse 15 where we have the phrase, the peace of Christ. Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. And let the peace of God... Let the peace of God or the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. What kind of peace is Paul talking about here? Well, as we just have seen, the concept of peace in the New Testament is multifaceted. So we don't want to assume, as soon as we see the word peace, that we know exactly to what it is referring we want to make sure we understand how it's being used. The concept of, the, of peace in the New Testament is really a combination of both the Hebrew and Greek aspects of peace. First of all, the Greek idea behind the word peace is that of an agreement, a pact, or a treaty. We even use the word that way today. We'll talk about a peace treaty. That is what I have been calling objective peace or peace with God. The Hebrew idea behind the word peace is that of inner tranquility. That is subjective peace or the peace of God. From these two put together, the word peace also describes harmony in relationship. And again, we use the word that way today. We talk about there being peace in the family, let's say, or peace in friendships. Interestingly, it appears that all three of those ideas are right here in this one verse. We have a peace treaty with Jesus Christ 
that results in an inner attitude of security or peace, which should result in harmonious relationships with one another. Before we were saved, we were at war with Jesus Christ. We were on opposite sides. But when we received him as Lord and Savior, he took us on his side and the war ended. He wrote a peace treaty with his blood. We are now at peace with him. As a result, we are no longer in turmoil within. Christ reigns in our hearts and he gives us his peace. So the peace of Christ is both a fact and a feeling, as I said earlier. This would be a good place to pause and just interject something that may help us in making decisions in our lives. There are two questions that we can ask ourselves whenever we are perplexed about a decision, which all of us, I'm sure, have experienced. Should I do this? Should I not do that? We're trying to wrestle through. We don't have chapter and verse to guide us. So here are two questions. Number one, is my decision or this decision I'm about to make in accord with the fact that I am now on Christ's side? Does this line up with or in any way contradict the fact that I am on Christ's side? He and I are at peace. Question number two, will this decision, will this choice leave me with an inner sense of confidence and peace? That is how, in a practical way, the peace of Christ can govern our lives. But verse, verse 15 goes even beyond those two aspects of peace to the third aspect, and that is because we are at peace with Christ and because we do have the peace of Christ within, that should result in harmony in our relationships with one another so that they are peaceful. You could almost say that verse 15 is an appeal for unity in the body of Christ. Paul is saying here, let the peace of God, the peace of Christ, rule, govern your hearts, thus govern your lives, govern your relationships to which you were called in one body. See the emphasis there on unity? Let the peace of Christ enable you to dwell together in one body and be thankful. The peace of Christ, objective, subjective, should result in tremendous unity in the body of Christ. A.W. Tozer illustrated it this way, and I don't know how technically accurate this is musically, but it makes the point. He said if you had 100 pianos in a room and wanted them to be tuned the same, you would not begin tuning them to one another. You would have a mess. Instead, you tune them all to the same tuning fork, and then they would be in tune with each other. That's the idea here in verse 15. If we are all in tune with Jesus Christ, then we will all be in tune with each other. At the end of the verse, notice Paul says, and be thankful. Why add that? Because thankfulness allows peace to rule in the body. Show me a church where people complain and murmur and gripe and I'll show you a church where there is disharmony. But, by contrast, 
Show me a church where people are thankful and grateful, and I'll show you a church that allows the peace of Christ to rule. Paul says we are to be thankful, thankful for the privilege of being called into this one body of Christ. If we're not careful, we can begin to adopt the perspective that God was obligated to take us into his family or that Christ was obligated to take us into his body. And we lose sight of the fact that it's a privilege and we should be thankful and thus not do anything to divide the body. That's what the Holy Spirit is saying here in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your midst. And I believe that Paul is pulling together all three aspects of peace in that one verse. Now our text in Philippians 4 focuses on inner tranquility or subjective peace. It's talking about the peace of God. Let's go back there a few pages to the left to Philippians chapter 4. Verse 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That is a monumental statement when you stop to think about it. Be anxious for nothing? If we didn't know better, we might assume that Paul didn't live in the real world. With all that goes on in our world, and specifically now, with all that is going on in our world, how can he tell us to be anxious for nothing? What does he mean? This does not mean, by the way, that you don't care about anything or that you don't have any feelings about anything. Back in chapter 2, Paul described the concern and the emotion that he, Timothy, and Epaphroditus had. He says, chapter 2, verse 19, I trusted the Lord Jesus to send Timothy, Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your condition, your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Paul was concerned for the Philippians, concerned about how they were doing spiritually. So here he says he sent Timothy because he knew Timothy would have a genuine, deep concern for the lives of the Philippians. This shows us that it's not wrong to be concerned for people. And then down in verse 25, he says, Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, I sent him because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick, for indeed he was sick almost unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I send him the more eagerly, that when you see him again you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Epaphroditus was distressed, and Paul was experiencing sorrow, so those emotions aren't wrong. In Galatians 4.11, Paul said, I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Again, beloved, understand, deep emotions are not wrong. 
So when Paul tells us, be anxious for nothing, he is not saying, be emotionless. Have no emotions, no feelings whatsoever. Then what does Paul mean when he tells us to be anxious for nothing? I think the best way to say it would be to say, Paul is telling us we should not be controlled or dominated by anxiety. A genuine, deep concern for people is good, but when it turns into worry, anxiety, it's bad. And isn't this the way Satan often works? If he can't get us to do something bad, then he pushes us too far regarding something good so that it turns into something bad. Another distinction we ought to make is this. A genuine, deep concern for people is good. But worrying about circumstances that are out of your control is bad. That's why Paul says in chapter 4, be anxious for nothing. The psalmist put it this way in Psalm 55, 22, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. David recognized that there would be things that come into our lives, times in life where we experience the things that are too heavy for us to handle because they are burdens. So he tells us in Psalm 55, 22, to cast them upon the Lord. That's the same thing Paul is saying here in Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing but in everything. Don't pass over that little phrase too quickly. In everything. Do you realize, beloved, that God wants us to bring everything to him? He isn't bothered by us when we come to him frequently in prayer. We're not being a nuisance. We're, we're not insignificant, and nothing in our lives is trivial. Vincent said it this way, quote, Prayer is to include all our interests, small and great. Nothing is too great for God's power, nothing too small for his fatherly care. That's a great statement. Prayer is to include all our interests, small and great. Nothing is too great for God's power, nothing too small for his fatherly care. So, verse 6 says, pray. Take it to the Lord. And as you do, verse 6 says, with thanksgiving. Pray with thanksgiving. Now maybe you're wondering, how can I be thankful for the very thing that's causing me anxiety? It's a valid question, and I think there are answers. How can we be thankful for the very thing that is causing us anxiety? Two ways. One, look back at God's goodness and work in your life in the past. That ought to produce thankfulness. When we look back and see how God worked in circumstances in the past, situations in the past that we thought were maybe unsolvable or that no good could come out of those. So we can look back at God's goodness. Secondly, you can look forward to the fact that he is working all things together for good. That ought to produce thankfulness. So even though the present looks grim, the past and the future 
can be a cause for expressing thankfulness by faith, even though we don't understand what God is doing in the present. Thankfulness has a way of producing a submissive spirit within us, and that squelches anxiety and worry. So pray with thanksgiving and let your requests be made known to God. James 4, 2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. So rather than be anxious, let your requests be made known to God. Then, verse 7 gives us that wonderful promise. But before moving on to verse 7, let's pause here to make an obvious application that unfortunately isn't always obvious to us in life. Here it is. In your difficulty, go to God. Did you hear that? In your difficulty, go to God. Why am I emphasizing the obvious? Because our natural tendency is to turn to people. I see this. I see this tendency in my own life. When a problem comes into my life or a burden comes into my life, my first thought often is, I need to talk to someone about this. That's the wrong first thought. Our first thought ought to be to take it to the Lord in prayer, but that doesn't come naturally to us. Instead, what comes naturally is to call a friend or call a pastor or call a counselor or call a therapist. Now, there's nothing wrong with turning to people who can support us and encourage us and help us and pray for us and guide us. Nothing wrong with that. The Bible talks much about that. But my fear is that we often look exclusively to people for help instead of to God. So I'll say it again because I need to hear it as much as anyone. In your difficulty, go to God. I'm convinced that God allows things to come into our lives to drive us to him. But when we turn to people all the time instead of to him, then we totally undermine what he's trying to do. He's trying to get us to turn to him. That's what... Paul says to do here in verse 6. That's what the Holy Spirit says to do in verse 6. Then the promise is given in verse 7, which says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Please notice carefully what this promise does not say. God doesn't promise to give us the exact answer we asked for in our prayers. God doesn't promise to take away our problems. God doesn't promise to take away the problems that our world is experiencing. The promise of verse 7 is peace in the midst of difficulty. Peace even when we don't get what we think God ought to give us by way of an answer to prayer. That's why Paul calls this peace a peace which surpasses understanding, a peace that surpasses comprehension. It's a peace that 
We can't conjure up by trying to worry about our problems. All too often, our motto is, why pray when you can worry? That's the wrong motto. The Holy Spirit is saying just the opposite. Why worry when you can pray? Why worry when God promises a peace that is able to surpass the worry conjured up in our minds? God promises a peace which surpasses all understanding. Let me share with you two true life illustrations. One you are probably familiar with. The other you may not be familiar with. Here's the first one. Horatio G. Spafford was a successful businessman. Some months prior to the Chicago Fire of 1871, he had invested heavily in real estate on the shore of Lake Michigan, and his holdings were wiped out by the disaster. Just before that, he had suffered the loss of his son. To get away for some rest and to be involved in a D.L. Moody campaign, Spafford planned a European trip for his family, which included four daughters. At the last moment, something came up that forced him to stay in Chicago, but he sent his wife and four daughters on ahead. At this point, I quote, When the French luxury liner left New York Harbor in November 1873, she was the most famous passenger vessel afloat. Among her passengers was Mrs. H.G. Spafford of Chicago, who with her four children was embarking on a long-awaited trip to the British Isles and the continent of Europe. At 2 o'clock on the morning of November 22, 1873, when the ship was several days at sea and sailing on quiet waters, she was rammed by the British iron sailing boat Lockhorn. Lockhorn. Within two hours, the luxurious French liner settled to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean with the loss of 226 lives. Among the casualties were the four Spafford children. Nine days later, Mrs. Spafford cabled her husband from Cardiff, Wales, and her cable message had only two words, saved alone. His immediate reply was, I am so glad to trust the Lord when it will cost me something. As soon as he could, Mr. Spafford booked passage on another ship and was soon crossing the Atlantic Ocean to join his grief-stricken wife. On the way over in December of that same year, the captain invited Mr. Spafford into his cabin and said, I believe we are now passing over the place where the ship went down. That night, Mr. Spafford could not sleep, but faith soon conquered doubt, and out of his heartbreak and pain, there in the mid-Atlantic, he wrote five stanzas of a hymn he entitled, It Is Well With My Soul. The first stanza goes like this. When peace like a river attendeth my way, 
When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That's a peace that passes understanding. The second illustration is very similar, but this time it is about a woman of God, not a man of God. In his book called Second Wind, Charles Swindoll writes these words. The bitter news of Dawson Trotman's drowning swept like cold wind across Scroon Lake to the shoreline. Eyewitnesses tell of the profound anxiety, the tears, the helpless disbelief in the faces of those who now looked out across the deep blue water. Everyone's face, that is, except one. Lila Trotman, Dawson's widow. As she suddenly walked upon the scene, a close friend shouted, Oh, Lila, he's gone. Dawson's gone. To that she replied in calm assurance the words of Psalm 115.3. But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. All of the anguish, the sudden loneliness that normally consumes and cripples those who survive did not invade that woman's heart. Instead, she leaned hard upon her sovereign Lord who had once again done what he pleased. End quote. That is a peace that passes understanding. It's a peace in the midst of extreme pain and severe adversity. Jesus promised that kind of peace. Look at what he said back in John 16. Go back to the left to the gospel accounts, the gospel of John chapter 16. And here's the context. The disciples were in turmoil because they were about to lose their teacher, their leader, their friend, their master. In addition to that, they were going to be left in a world that didn't like them because of their association with Jesus. So in verse 33, Jesus said this to them, these things, and he's talking about all that he had taught them in this upper room discourse leading up to this point, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. There's one part of that promise that we don't like to claim. And that's the part that says, in this world, you will have tribulation. In this world, you will have trouble and problems and hard times. But the great thing about this verse, beloved, is that Jesus promises that ultimately we will win. It may not look like it at times, but ultimately we will win. Romans 8.37 says, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That little phrase, more than conquerors, it's really an interesting Greek phrase because it's two words, huper and Nike. Super Nikes. We are super Nikes, more than conquerors through him who loved us. Because Jesus won, 
And because we know we will win, we can have peace in him. That's what he says here in verse 33. But we need to be careful how we define peace. Peace is not the absence of turmoil. Peace is not the absence of burdens. It's not the absence of stress. That's what some people think. I have people come to me regularly who will say, Brian, I want to trust the Lord and I want to know his peace, but I'm so distressed about such and such situation. And you know what? That's okay. Just because you're burdened doesn't mean you still can't have peace. It's possible to be burdened. Even, I would say, it's possible to be distressed about things and still have peace. How can I say that? Jesus did. Throughout his life, Jesus had peace. In fact, he says here in the Upper Room Discourse, I want to leave my peace with you, the peace I have experienced and had throughout my life. I want to leave that with you. Jesus had peace, but he experienced turmoil, pressures, burdens, and stress. Just look back a few chapters to chapter 11 and look at what he felt on this occasion here when he lost a friend, someone who was so dear to him. Chapter 11, verse 32. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who came with her weeping, look at this. He groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Did Jesus have peace? Absolutely. On this occasion, was Jesus in turmoil, groaning and troubled? Yes. And look at what he said over in chapter 12, the very next chapter. Chapter 12, verse 27. He says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. That is our Lord himself talking about what he experienced. My soul is troubled. So again, let me emphasize, experiencing the peace of Jesus doesn't mean that we will never be burdened. We will never feel pressure. We will never be troubled. We will never experience turmoil or we will never be afraid. As we saw earlier, it it simply means we should not be controlled or dominated by those things. Let me put it this way. If we didn't struggle with those things or if they were completely absent from our lives, then what need would we have for the peace of Jesus? If we were able to go through life without ever ever having any burdens or struggles or ever being in turmoil, we wouldn't need peace. Peace doesn't take those struggles and heartaches away. It simply calms them. It simply enables us to be able to walk through them in a way that is honoring to our Lord. And I believe that's what Jesus meant in chapter 14 of this upper room discourse, he said in chapter 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be afraid. Because the disciples were troubled and afraid, they needed peace. 
but as we've seen from the life of Jesus himself, concerns and fears are not wrong unless they control us. Concerns and fears are reminders to us that we need peace. And that's what Jesus says in chapter 16, verse 33. I've spoken these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. That little phrase, in me, these things I have spoken to you, that in, that in me, that phrase ought to remind us of what Jesus said just one chapter earlier in chapter 15, verse 4, where he exhorts us with the words, abide in me. Stay close to me. As we abide in Christ, as we stay close, we can experience his peace. You know, I like to think about the disciples sitting around on this evening in the upper room, hearing these words of Jesus and wondering, what were they thinking? What were they getting? Did, did they grasp what Jesus was saying? Well, it does appear that Peter got the message as he listened to Jesus on this night. Why do I believe that? Well, look at what he said years ago when he wrote his first letter. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. And think about what Jesus had said to Peter many years prior to this, maybe 30 years prior to this, 35 years. Who knows how many exactly? We don't know exactly when 1 Peter was written, but... Many years later, Peter writes, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Verse 7 literally reads this way, It matters to him about you. Child of God, do you believe that? It matters to him about you. So be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. May we, especially in these tumultuous times, experience and also demonstrate that we are living by experiencing the peace of God. Let's pray together. Father, what a priceless treasure peace is. What an agony it is to have an absence of peace, to be totally controlled by anxiety and worry and fear, to be dominated by those things so that we can think of nothing else but our fears and our concerns. But Lord, you promise a different option to us. Yes, we will have concerns. Yes, we will have fears. Yes, we will have problems, things that distress us but we can cast all our care upon you because you do care for us. It matters 
to you. We matter to you. So thank you for those precious words in Philippians 4, to be anxious for nothing, but instead in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. May we have as our first response to let our request be made known unto you, not as a second, third, fourth response. May that be our immediate and initial response always. And thank you for the promise that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Father, we always need peace. That's why Jesus said, my peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you. But especially we need peace in these days. Instead of being controlled by anxiety, may instead we be experiencing peace, a peace that surpasses understanding. We ask for that as you've encouraged us to ask and pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.